When you suffer, it should not come as a surprise, especially if you suffer for the sake of Christ. However, alongside the pain, do you sense His compassion? Do you experience the sympathy of the Holy Spirit to comfort you in grief? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Jeremiah. Over recent weeks, we've been building on the theme of promise and deliverance. Today, we'll hear about the help that God gives whenever we're in trouble. Well, Phil, in today's passage, we find Jeremiah suffering once again. What is the meaning, really, of all this suffering? Well, Mark, we've seen uh, Jeremiah suffer pretty much all the way through the whole book, and we're now into chapter 38. And it's a good question to ask, what is the meaning of all this suffering? And I think we get the answer to it when we turn to the Gospels and we see Jesus Christ. And in fact, some people, when they saw Jesus, said it reminded them of Jeremiah. How many connections we see between the kinds of torment and ridicule and hardship that Jeremiah faced and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. These things are speaking to us about the things that Christ endured for our salvation. How does understanding Jeremiah's suffering and Jesus' suffering help us understand our own? Well, really, I think, Mark, we need to do the same thing with our sufferings that I was saying that we should do with Jeremiah's sufferings, and that is connect them to Jesus and to the cross. Because when I see the things that Jesus endured for my salvation, I realize that here is a Savior who can sympathize and even empathize with whatever opposition I'm facing, with whatever physical weakness I must endure. Here is a Savior who's suffered in every way, just as we do, and is able by His grace, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the Word, to speak to us and care for us in our own time of need. Thank you, Phil. We're in Jeremiah 38, verses 14 through 28, where you can turn now and listen in to God's Word for us today. Well, I wonder if some of these things are starting to sound familiar. Jeremiah the prophet is thrown in jail. His enemies among the leaders of Jerusalem have thrown him into the water cistern in a private home. And there they have left him to die as if in a dungeon. Zedekiah the king is nervous. He is afraid of the Babylonian army, which has attacked his city, and he wants to know what God is planning to do with him. So Zedekiah has Jeremiah brought up from the dungeon for a private audience. When the prophet arrives, the king asks him for a word from the Lord, and Jeremiah gives it to him. Jerusalem will fall into the hands of the Babylonians. Zedekiah will not escape. Then at the end of the conversation, Jeremiah returns, not to the dungeon where he was before, but to house arrest in the courtyard of the guard. Well, if any of this sounds familiar, it is because what happens in Jeremiah 37 is very much what happens to him again in chapter 38. Jeremiah 38 is almost a case of deja vu. These two stories share many of the same characters and events. The similarities between them have led some scholars to argue that they are two contradictory reports of the same event. Douglas Rawlinson Jones, for example, concludes that there can be no reasonable doubt that these stories are duplicate traditions of the same event, each, however, providing something which the other omits. This is a sort of favorite strategy of Bible scholars, deciding that two similar events in the Old Testament are actually 
the same event. This is the kind of thing that happens to Jeremiah, which has suffered much at the hands of many scholars. In this case, I believe this is an instance when the history of the Bible and also its artistry must be defended. For although there are some similarities, Jeremiah 37 and 38 describe two separate events. There are two charges. First, Jeremiah is accused of desertion. That's chapter 37, verse 13. And then he is blamed for demoralizing the troops, chapter 38, verse 4. There are two jails. In one chapter, Jeremiah is imprisoned in Jonathan's dungeon, and in the next, he ends up in Malchijah's cistern. Surely this is not a contradiction, but an accurate account of two separate events. And then there are two rescues. First, Zedekiah is the one who orders Jeremiah to be removed from the dungeon. And then, in the beginning of chapter 38, Evid-Melech uses ropes to haul Jeremiah out of Malchijah's cistern. There are two meeting places. In chapter 37, Jeremiah is invited to the palace, but in chapter 38, as we have read, he goes to the temple, and finally, there are two conversations. In their first rendezvous, Jeremiah pronounces judgment upon the king and pleads for his own life. But at their second secret meeting, the prophet tells Zedekiah to surrender to the Babylonians, and surrender was unnecessary in chapter 37 because the Babylonians had lifted their siege, but now in chapter 38, it is their only hope. Now, why do I bother to say all that? Well, getting the facts straight about Jeremiah's incarceration is important because the facts show how greatly Jeremiah suffered for God and for God's word. He was ignored, accused, beaten, imprisoned, and falsely charged with treachery. He was hauled from prison to prison. He was dragged from dungeon to dungeon, from one miserable place to another, until finally he was left to die in the mud. You know, Jeremiah's legal troubles were nearly identical to those of the Apostle Paul, who gave this testimony, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, with the exception of being stoned or shipwrecked on the high seas, Jeremiah had been through all of that, including the daily burden of his concern for the people of God. And so, like Paul, Jeremiah shows how much a believer may suffer for the sake of Christ. Suffering is the usual pattern of the Christian life. And this is because suffering was the pattern of Christ's life. Jesus Christ suffered, as the Catechism says, the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross. And just as Christ suffered, so also the Christian must expect to suffer. Romans chapter 8, we are God's children if, if 
Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Anyone who wants to share in Christ's glory must first share in his humility. The Apostle Paul was one who understood how necessary it is for the Christian to suffer. He even desired the trials of life. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We see the way that Jeremiah had a passionate desire to know the very same things. And although his place in the history of redemption prevented him from knowing Christ's resurrection power in the way that we know it, he surely knew the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. As you come to church this evening, is it your testimony that you are suffering? If so, it should not come as a surprise, especially if you in some sense are suffering for the sake of Christ. And if you are suffering, do you know the fellowship of sharing in these sufferings with Christ? Do you sense his compassion for you as one who has tasted all the miseries of human life and death? Do you sense the sympathy of the Holy Spirit to comfort you in grief? You take strength from the hope of the resurrection as you find it in Scripture. All of this is available to help God's friends whenever they are in trouble. Everyone who suffers with Christ receives his strength through suffering. Consider the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who paid with his own life for his resistance to the Nazis. He wrote, If we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. To bear the cross proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering. And this is true for all who follow Christ because it was true for him. There is another reason it is important to understand that there were two meetings between Zedekiah and Jeremiah, and the second is that it shows what kind of king this man was. The fact that Zedekiah kept sending for Jeremiah shows he was a weakling. He couldn't make up his mind. Eugene Peterson says, Nothing lasted long with Zedekiah. The man was a marshmallow. He received impressions from anyone who pushed hard enough, and when the pressure was off, he gradually resumed his earlier state, ready for the next impression. Zedekiah took on whatever shape the circumstances required. Another way to say that is that Zedekiah was vulnerable to peer pressure. So when King Nebuchadnezzar first came to capture Jerusalem in the year 597, Zedekiah was all for the Babylonians, but once they left and he started listening to his advisors who wanted to rebel against Babylon, he decided to throw off the yoke of oppression. And so Zedekiah reversed his foreign policy. Well, he had equal difficulty making up his mind what to do about Jeremiah. As we learned in chapter 37, he refused to listen to him, but he also wanted to hear what he had to say. He cast him into the dungeon. But then he decided it would be better for him simply 
to be under house arrest. And now, as Harrison states, the desperate Zedekiah turns to the very man whom he and the people have rejected for so long. As we read in verse 14, Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah and had him brought to the temple. I am going to ask you something. Don't hide anything from me. You see, Zedekiah is still holding out the hope that God would change his mind. And yet here we see that God insists that if anyone is going to change his mind, it must be Zedekiah. This is what the Lord God says, reading in verse 17, If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, and this city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender, this city will be handed over, and the Babylonians will burn it down, and you yourself will not escape from their hands. Jeremiah gave the king a very simple choice. It was either turn or burn. Zedekiah turned himself over to the Babylonians. His own life and the life of his city would be spared. If not, Jerusalem would be burned to the very ground. You know, the fact that God gave Zedekiah this choice at this late date was a remarkable sign of his patience for sinners. Many times God had warned the king that his sins would lead to judgment, and just as many times Zedekiah had refused to listen and ignored every warning. And yet, amazingly, graciously, God still holds out for Zedekiah a way of escape. He still offers him mercy and peace and grace and salvation. The scripture says that God shows this same patience to every sinner. The Apostle Peter promises that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it is at this very moment, on this very evening, that God is still exercising his patience towards sinners. The day of judgment is being held back because, as the Bible says, God does not want anyone to perish. He does not want you to perish. He still offers to you a way of escape, eternal life, through his Son, Jesus Christ. And he offers it to you this very evening still holding back the day of judgment, although the day of judgment will someday come. Sadly, Zedekiah faced the day of judgment. He rejected the way of salvation because he was afraid. And especially, as we read in verse 19, he was afraid of the Jews who had deserted to the enemy. He must have been some king that he should be afraid of his own people. King Zedekiah said, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them, and they will mistreat me. Mistreat is not the word. Literally, what Zedekiah says is that he is afraid of his own countrymen because they will abuse him. Now, by itself, Zedekiah's fear was not a sin. There are times when it is good to fear. For example, it is good to fear the Lord, or it is good to have a healthy fear of some natural danger. Zedekiah's sin was 
living by his fears rather than living by faith. His sin was not trusting God when he was afraid. His sin was keeping his fears to himself rather than taking them and entrusting them to the Lord. Once he came to the realization that he was afraid and admitted, as it says in the Bible, I am afraid, he found himself unable to do anything else. He was paralyzed with fear. King David once found himself in a similar situation. He was surrounded by enemies, and finally he was captured by the Philistines. He described his troubles like this. This is Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me all day long. They press their attack. Many are attacking me in their pride. And although we know David to be a great man of courage, this time he feared for his life. For in the very next verse, he admits the same words that Zedekiah used, I am afraid. But he did not stay scared for long, for unlike Zedekiah, David knew how to trust and obey even when he was afraid. He goes on to say this, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? As David begins to write his psalm, he's still scared, but he will not stay scared because he knows how to live by faith in the middle of fear. He is working through his fear to the place of confidence and trust in God. One of the things I often find as a pastor and as I counsel people who seek spiritual help is that many people face the choice whether they will live by faith or live by fear. They know the right thing to do, and yet they are afraid to do it. Here are some examples of the kinds of situations I mean. A young Christian woman is involved in a romantic relationship with a man who is not a Christian. She knows that she must break off this relationship because they cannot marry, and yet she is afraid to break up with him because of the pain and loneliness she knows she will feel. A teenager has committed a petty theft. He knows that saying that he is sorry is not enough. He must go back to the people he has robbed and make reparations, and yet he is afraid, and especially of what his parents might do when they find out. An addict knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that drugs and alcohol are destroying his life, and he half wants to quit And yet he is unable to leave behind the familiar comfort and security of his addictions. Or perhaps a husband or wife is in bondage to some sin. A wife is deep in credit card debt or a husband has fallen into the snare of pornography. And each is in bondage to sin and escape seems impossible. And yet they are afraid to get spiritual help because, among other things, they know that their spouses will be angry or devastated if they find out. Now, in such cases, it is all too easy to say, I know what I should do, but but the situation is too far gone. But I cannot face the consequences. But I am afraid of what people will think. But I do not know what might happen to me if this comes out. And yet the truth is this. But it is always, always best 
to obey the Lord, no matter what. If you hold back from obeying the Lord, it will permanently weaken your spiritual condition. It is much worse to end up in an unequal marriage or to remain addicted to drugs or to carry around a weight of guilt for secret sin or whatever other fear you may face. It is much worse to carry all of that around than to face up to sin and to pray for grace to overcome it. Sin is like a foul-smelling mold. It flourishes in the dark. It festers. And yet as soon as it is brought out into the light of day and into the light of God's grace, it begins gradually to die. Not long ago, I received a telephone call from an officer in another church in another state. And he was in great distress because he was involved in a sin which threatened to destroy not only his family, but in his opinion, also his church. And he knew that he needed to go to his pastor and confess his sins so that the whole process of reconciliation could begin. And yet, like Zedekiah, he was afraid. He was afraid of what might happen to the people who love him. He was afraid of the consequences in his own life. He was afraid of what might happen in his church. And yet I gave him the same counsel I would give to anyone who is afraid to do the right thing, and that is that you must do the right thing. The consequences of disobedience are always much worse than the consequences of repentance. And this is because our God is so wise and so gracious that he can bring great good even out of the worst situation provided that there is genuine repentance. Now, repentance is what Zedekiah needed to offer. God was offering him a good way out of his bad situation. If only, if only he would surrender, his life would be spared and his city would be saved. Notice how Jeremiah pleads with him to obey. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you, and your life will be spared. These are the words of a true friend who seeks what is best. What will Zedekiah do, this marshmallow of a king? The fate of his entire nation hangs in the balance. As Kidner says, to see what hung on the king's yes or no, we have only to read the next chapter for the horror awaiting him and his sons. Or to read Lamentations 4 for the living skeletons and cannibals of the city's last days. For you see, this turned out to be the last interview that Jeremiah and Zedekiah ever had. I suppose Zedekiah may have wondered if there might be another chance for him to invite Jeremiah to the palace and see what he had to say, see if his opinion or his words of prophecy might change. And yet, this was the king's last best chance for salvation. And sadly, he squandered it. He knew the right thing to do, and yet he was afraid to do it. And in the end, as we shall discover next week, Zedekiah was betrayed by his own officials, by those other counselors who did not have the word of the Lord. Jeremiah's prophecy about this is vivid. He portrays the royal harem taunting the king as they are being carried off as prisoners of war. 
All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon, and those women will say to you, they, meaning Zedekiah's other counselors, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you, and then all your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured, and this city will be burned down. And notice the final irony in the taunt that Zedekiah will be given by his harem. The very king who let Jeremiah down into the bottom of that muddy cistern will be stuck in the mud himself. This is the justice of God for a sinner who will not turn away from his sins, who will not heed the warning, who will not receive the offer of the way of salvation before it is too late. Now, I suppose that what happens to Zedekiah is not very surprising, given what we know of his character. And yet there is a surprise at the end of this chapter, and in it we learn how very hard it is to live by faith rather than by fear. Even a faithful man like Jeremiah can sometimes allow fear to lead him into sin. This is what happened after this last private audience. Zedekiah said, don't let anyone know about this conversation or you may die. If the officials hear that I talked with you and say, tell us what you said to the king, don't hide it from us or we will kill you, then tell them I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. The king, always the consummate politician, is afraid of leaks. He is taking precautions to protect himself from his own royal cabinet, and this is the kind of weakness that we expect from Zedekiah. But notice the surprise that Jeremiah goes along with it. Verse 27, all the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him, and he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him, for no one had heard his conversation with the king. Jeremiah lied. I do not believe there is any other way to put it. Jeremiah had another opportunity to speak about sin and grace to the leaders of Jerusalem. He had another opportunity to give the same words of warning and judgment, the same offer of repentance to the leaders of Jerusalem, and yet he kept his mouth shut. Instead, he gave them this cleverly devised story about an earlier audience he had had with the king. The fact that the king had instructed Jeremiah to lie is no excuse. When it comes to a choice between serving the king and serving the king of kings, he must obey God rather than men. The reason Jeremiah's dishonesty is so surprising is because he had never been afraid before, and especially of politicians. He preached to them in the city. He opposed them in the temple. He braved their beatings. He defied their dungeons. And through it all, he kept on preaching the word of God without compromise. As God promised when first he called Jeremiah to the ministry, the prophet had always been a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its officials, chapter 1 verse 18. And yet now, apparently, the pillar is starting to crack. Jeremiah's fears are starting to get the best of his faith. In the previous 
chapter, he begged Zedekiah to rescue him from Jonathan's dungeon, lest he should die. In this chapter, he again fears for his life. First, he is afraid of the king. Verse 15, Jeremiah said, If I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Jeremiah hesitates to prophesy because he fears the king will put him to death. He wants Zedekiah to give him prophetic immunity. And then at the end of this chapter, he is so afraid that he lies to the officials to save his neck. The fact that Jeremiah should act in fear rather than in faith is a reminder of his humanity. He is for us a hero of the faith, but he is not a superhero. He is a human being, and like other human beings, he is subject to doubt and weakness and frailty and fear. In his sinful nature, Jeremiah was no better than Zedekiah, for in this chapter we find him committing the very same kind of sin, not in the same degree, and yet it is at its root the same kind of sin. Twice God has delivered Jeremiah from death, and yet this time he is afraid And he seeks his own salvation by his own means. It is very dangerous to believe that you have ever mastered a sin. Being faithful to God in the past is no guarantee of faithfulness in the present or especially in the future. Maybe you were very bold in your evangelism when you first became a believer. Well, are you still as bold now as you were then, perhaps you are more humble than you were three years ago. But do not believe that you are not subject to pride, how very easy it would be for you to slip back into pride. Maybe there was a time in your life where you sold everything that you had and gave everything to the poor. Wonderful. And yet that does not prevent the seed of covetousness sprouting again in the garden of your spiritual life. Let everyone who thinks that he or she is standing firm take heed lest he or she fall. Jeremiah was a very great prophet. A careful study of his life and ministry as we have been making will place an indelible stamp on the life of every Christian He was passionate, faithful, long-suffering. He had a heart for God and for God's people, and yet Jeremiah was not perfect. There were times when his fear overcame his faith and he disobeyed God. And at such times, Jeremiah found that what he needed, like what we need, was a Savior for his sins. You know, when people first met Jesus of Nazareth, they were reminded of this man, Jeremiah. We read in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Similarities between Jeremiah and Jesus are striking 
Both men had the gift for teaching. Both men had the same passion for rebuking sin. Both men had the same love for God's people and on occasion wept over their sins. And yet by the Spirit of God, Simon Peter spotted the crucial difference. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the perfect Son of God as well as a real human being. And because Jesus is the Christ, he never committed a single sin. He never let his fear get the best of him. He always lived by faith. He never lived by fear. Even when he was being led away to his own crucifixion, he continued to trust in the will of his Father and to live by faith rather than by fear. And so he was able to die on the cross. And so he was able to become Jeremiah's Savior from sin and our Savior if we trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for our joy in renewing our studies in the book of Jeremiah. We do give you praise that this man suffered so greatly, for it reminds us both of the sufferings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and also of the necessity of suffering in the Christian life. And we pray now for the grace of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives so that we will not be overcome by our fears, but that we will live by faith in the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.